3, finish up the chapter today. We are dealing, of course, with Paul as he uh, deals with issues in the Corinthian church. Right now, the main one of the first four chapters or so has been division. And division doesn't just happen, there's always reasons for it. Uh, it usually, as in the case here, it's uh, have forgotten uh, what their way, have, have listened to worldly wisdom and uh, this and immaturity have uh, left to be full deal to a head, I think, next starting next week in chapter 4. Uh, last time, though, we dealt, remember, uh, the foundation price, you're either using good material or bad material in your life, either wood, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw. And so we learned how our lives, uh, how we live our lives matters for eternity. Work done for the right motivation will endure, and those, uh, works that are done for self and for wrong motivation will not. And something that not only pursues the world, it's possible for a lost person to do good, the right motivation to, uh, love his wife, for instance, for children, you can do good things for the right motivation, but you're still that pirate on a pirate ship. You're not doing it for the Lord. But even Christians can sometimes be motivated for things that are not good. And when we get motivated, we forget Christ, we forget the reason we end up doing things that are not pleasing to the Lord. We also saw that God sends things into our life to cause us to grow and produce lasting fruit. To expose the chaff in our lives, and certainly, while good works will have eternal meaning, I think we believe the fire of God's judgment text can refer to uh, even now. The Lord uh, sends trials our way to test our good works to see whether they be uh, good and pleasing to Him, and uh, so that. Judgment begins, as Peter said, even in this life. And then we saw Christ is the foundation, and so all of our works are to be used because of Him and for Him. And one way to test our works are, is, is, are they worthy of the foundation, Jesus Christ? And so, uh, we saw that we are to, that honors the foundation of the church. And uh, so as we come to our text today, beginning and really in verse 17, uh, let's let's begin actually in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple, this illustration, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroy God's temple, he will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are the temp- that temple. And so clearly how you conduct yourself towards the local church, as well as in general, uh, has great meaning uh, because this is God's building. It, it's His body. It's so how you treat God's people and how you treat the Lord. And that's the Paul. Jesus told Paul, "Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me uh, when He's persecuting the church?" In verse sixteen and seventeen, isn't the universal church, but local church and the local members who make up it? Paul is dealing with how the Corinthian church is functioning as a church. Talking about individuals, because the word control you is plural here, talking to the 
had all of a sudden changed directions. He's still talking to the church, to the body, the local body of Christ. Um, and verse 16 now defines the New Testament temple after the rejection and destruction of the Jewish temple. When we read about the temple uh, in the epistles and the household of God, it's always a reference to the church in some ways. Not even before the temple was done, remember Jesus had left their house and to them desolate. He had rejected it. And now the temple uh, is Christ and his body. And so in this case, they're destroying the church, or trying to, even if they didn't mean to. And it, and it was because they were living in their own wisdom, and not that, uh, that, that wisdom that comes through God's revelation alone. And He's been dealing with, you know, all, the last several verses, the last several uh, passages really have been dealing with natural wisdom versus the wisdom. The wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of the church. And so while this applies to all churches at large, Paul is concerned with how it's affecting this local body. And I think, again, if we get to chapter 11, we're going to see examples of this verse here where if you're going to... If Chapter 11, they were not discerning the body of Christ. They were not interacting with God's people in a loving, Christ-like way. They were, they were, they were coming together and they were feeding those in their little clique and those who maybe were obviously poor and, and needy, they were extreme and God was striking them dead. He was making them sickly and weak. So they were, that's destroying the church. So I think that's an example really of what's going on. So as we come to verse 18, we're, we're summing this up. I think thus far, the first three chapters, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If any among you think that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. I call this message a call to repentance, and I think that's what Paul is doing right there. He's saying let. The word let here, in other words, he's saying uh, change your direction. If you've been living according to worldly wisdom, Stop it and live it according to the word of God. And so there's a call to change because after all, if, if you're reading all this stuff and you're seeing, uh, he's exposing sin in our life and we don't change, and basically repentance is changing, no matter how you go about it, at the end of the day, if you stop doing what is wrong, doing what is intended, hopefully for the right reasons and so forth, but that's what Paul is them to do. And he said there's no reason for a Christian to live as if he has no life. And we have inner life as well as, of course, the word of God. So we need to keep before us the fact that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. That, you know, this isn't a problem that church faces. Every church I've been in has faced this. And we all, in, in, as individuals, can tragically fall into this. So we need to be careful then of saying that my heart is this or that and this is how I feel. That's all, again, not to be, I want to be picky about it, but this is what teaches us right and wrong and true. Unfortunately, our uh, the last several generations have been taught not how to think, but how to feel. How to feel about a certain and that's not doing anybody any good because it doesn't matter how you feel about something. You're going to feel about something according to understand something. We need to understand how to think through issues. 
not to react according to emotion. And this is usually an indication that we are not living by faith in God's word, but by the wisdom of man. Because the gospel affects all that we think and we feel right as we should. And if it, and if the gospel is affecting, or if, if the word of God is teaching me how to think and how to feel properly about truth, then we can truly say, I am being led by the Spirit. If you're not being led by the Spirit, and uh, get emotional, and all, the, and you have a feeling, and say, well, I can feel the Spirit. It might be the Spirit, it might not be the Spirit. But one thing I know is that if I uh, understand and believe the Word of God, and try to live accordingly, I am being led by the Spirit of God. And along with that, we must by all means stop thinking that simply that living by faith simply means we trust the Lord. That's not living by faith. Now, it's part of it. Obviously, we trust the Lord to take care of us. But only the Bible explains to us who the Lord is and what He's doing. So to just generically say that I'm trusting the Lord to take care of me, you don't uh, know the Lord, but you don't know the Lord, is not living by faith. Faith is building a life upon the word of God. I trust as I have obeyed what the gospel has told me to do. That's the only evidence of living by faith. I mean, how does faith come? It comes by... So living by faith is to believe in his revelation and his wisdom, and this can only be proven letting the word be the light by which we live. Anyone who says, you know, I just believe. I, I, I believe that God will take care of me. And they just mean in a generic way. It's not living by faith. If, you know, in, in the world, calls, you know, faith uh, a shot in the dark. We're just kind of hoping that this is the case. That's not biblical faith. You know, it's going to turn out. It's to see what the Bible says to believe in it and live upon it. So we can only live by faith as we come to know his word for we know and understand and believe the more we can live by faith. So as I said, it's not simply trusting the Lord for help. It's actively living by his word, living by his wisdom. That's what Paul talks about, his wisdom. That's where we find it. So here Paul calls to repent that we've been living by something other So in verse 18, up until this point, the first, uh, of, of the eight, verse 18, he defends this is his bottom line, which begins here in verse 18. Having said everything about us being born in darkness and and, and uh, the world thinks the, the gospel is foolishness, but we have been made spiritual, you've been given an understanding. All these things, he says, now it's time for you to start living uh, according to what. So the first, the, this is the first time he calls upon his readers. He says, stop deceiving, quit deceiving yourself.
18, where he says, Let no man deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So, if, you, if you're listening to this world, you think the world has the answers, you need to become a fool. World, not an obvious, not a real fool, but a fool to the world. Start trusting in what is true wisdom. They are, you need to see, 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 see trying to, to uh, look to man and start looking to God. He's going to show them how to start looking at him and the other apostles in a different way as well, but that'll be when we get to chapter 4. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries, mysteries of God. Uh, he's going to explain how you're supposed to understand uh, your, your spiritual leaders and those your teachers and those that you have elevated to a place over God in some ways. So he's basically one way is both so you have to turn your back on the. You can't live by both. You can't you can't live by the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world. And again, it's not saying that everything taught by the lost is foolish or evil. It's speaking of wisdom and what you do with, with wisdom is what you do with the knowledge, right? So you might go to school and learn about some, some you know special uh, specific scientific. Yeah, but you will listen to the way they teach you and what they're teaching. Understand it and utilize it according to the Bible, and the view that the Bible has given you. So you, um, they won't tell you to use whatever you're learning to the glory of God. If I take what they taught me and don't the glory of God and for the good. I have, uh, I am, I am living foolishly. Much damage to church we push ourselves instead of the word. So when we come to church and start using worldly ways of thinking in God's kingdom, the church is doomed to God's employ those who destroy my temple. And again, it's not to say that a Christian will be, go to hell, but if God will take care of you, will, will deal with you as you see fit. The world says exalt yourself, while Christ says humble yourself and serve us. And if the world is the, if the word of God is the rule of our lives, then we won't come into the church and start preaching. But we're going to come and start working together that we might honor the Lord. Any interaction I have with any of you is going to be that for the glory of God, for, for your good before Him, your good as a Christian. And if I come into and I'm seeking my own agenda and I don't care who I hurt what I do what kind of decision I cause as long as I get my way I have completely lost uh, my way before the Lord it allows us to submit to, to, submit to things that are how we would do this Jesus. besides the importance of this of what happens They could be in the church for years, and as soon as something doesn't go the way they want to go, 
This is one reason why I can get up. Okay, I, I skipped something here. Uh, remember, worldly wisdom, first of all, in the beginning of chapter 3, the, the, the flesh Christian was the prideful Christian. We know better than God. Up here, other than the Lord. And this is, this is the kind of pride uh, that we're talking about here. And this is one reason why I can get up here week after week an elder teacher in a church even though I realize how insufficient I can be and how little I know relatively speaking that there are always others who can do something better than me who know more than me I, even though all that's true I, the reason I can get, up, can get up here and have full confidence that the Lord can bless this church is because I have one in what I am teaching, which is the Word of God. I know that I can't go uh, wrong if I'm teaching you the whole counsel of God and presenting before you, feeding you Jesus Christ week after week. I know, and I've been around long enough to know that it works because I've got a special technique. The technique is that I, that, that I know this is I have confidence in the Word of God. The truly dangerous Christian, especially truly dangerous pastor, is the one who has a low view of Scripture. Because wisdom here, you got to read Scripture. At the end of the day, that's the same thing. And a pastor who doesn't really believe that all Scripture is inspired, the Word of God, uh, is going to insert his own wisdom. It's not going to teach all of it. All of it is important. And so, this is the weaknesses I have. And it's not, of course, I'm not alone. There's other, a lot of other pastors like this. But my saving grace is that I know that this is where my strength is. That this is what you need. When you talk to others, It is all, is it all tempered? Or, no regard to what you're saying. And you have to touch, do you, is your normal conversation really contrary to everything that you profess? You just really, it's interesting. You're, you listen to the world and all sorts of So you can have a large measure of confidence in any elder who holds a view of Scripture that Jesus did. It doesn't mean that everything I say is going to be right. That I don't. That I don't, I don't make mistakes. But you can have confidence that this is true. So in verses nineteen and twenty, he uh, he makes a couple of interesting to what he's saying here. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. The wisdom of this world is folly with God, as we've already seen that in chapter one. And from Job, he catches on. No matter how wise somebody looks, maybe some preacher out there that you really like, and 
but you know that he's not strong in the word of God and inspiration. Whoever, anyone who thinks they're wise in this world, it's going to eventually come on them, come back to them. If nothing else, when they stand before the Lord. Now the interesting thing about this, this quote is that Paul is quoting a man who was later rebuked by God for being wrong. He's quoting from Jephthah. And we know that Eliphaz was speaking to Job things that were not true. And later, um, we read in Job, these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, him and I, he was, My wrath is kindled against you and against, against your two friends because you have spoken of me what is right as my servant. Paul's quoting one of the things that Eliphaz says that the Lord rebukes. So, this is interesting because I had, uh, this, in the this, 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 this last few months, I've had at least two people come up to me and say, you know, sometimes I struggle with how to read Job. It, 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 it can be a difficult book. Especially the, mainly when someone says that, they're talking about those three friends and what they're saying because they're rebuked for saying it, yet it takes up a huge of the book. So here's an example. What Eliphaz who? Obviously Paul wouldn't quote it, right? Um, but he, but he says here, um, he catches the wise in their craftiness. In other words, the wise aren't really wise. And it's going to come on them. It's going to be turned against them at some point. God does trip up the wicked by employing their own cunning, their own cunning, their own wisdom against them. They make the downfall. And if you think about, it, if in Romans one you are suppressing what you know uh, is true about God, you suppress that. Well, that's going to judge you for that. That'd be just one example. And so He's saying the wise of this age aren't so smart after all. So don't. And I probably speak in one sense. Because it is so easy for young people to get caught up in the culture of music stars, or movie stars. Sure. You, you listen to them instead of your pastor or your picker. And it, 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 you know, they should do the same thing. You know, and I can remember doing the same thing myself. And he's saying, be careful. Because it's going to, you know, those people that you look up to are destruction. God allows the wise to carry out their schemes, but he their cunning schemes. Well, go with, uh, in the book of who had, uh, food deceit had gallows built to hang Mordecai, and he becomes the one who on them. It becomes a source of his divine. And the tribes and the Pharisees deem themselves to be wise, uh, especially in the interpretation of the Old Testament, and in their wisdom, they crucify Christ, and of course, by crucifying Christ, uh, he becomes the, uh, he is gifted to, and he will judge him for that very act. See why Paul can use this verse to undergird his point that the word world's wisdom is really folly. Elephant
has thought himself wise. He is, in his wisdom, he appointed himself as Job's counselor, and Eliphaz was dealing with Job as though he, Job, was one to wise up. See, this is, this is why God didn't like, it's not that what those three friends said were wrong as a rule, it was their application. See, Eliphaz was saying, Job, you think you're so wise, but you've done something now, now you're paying the price for it. And, uh, all Eliphaz is doing is just bringing God's wrath upon himself. Eliphaz is the one. Those three friends were doing the very thing they were criticizing Job for. So, again, that's understand how to read Job. It's not that what they're saying is be seen as wrong. It's generally speaking is right. It's just you have to understand how they're applying it to get past that. Then in verse 20, he makes the second quote from Psalm 94, 11, uh, which says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, they are but a breath. And you see that Paul kind of paraphrases that a, a, a little bit, where he says, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So not just that they are here today and gone tomorrow, but that they are actually destructive. They actually don't produce any good thing is temporal but it and it will not last also destructive and so it's a warning to us again they not only lead people astray but they actually become the feet of tripping us up stumble bringing God's wrath upon it and so it's you should pursue the wisdom of God it is being illustrated on a daily basis what happens when this world rejects the wisdom of the, of the Bible and just uh, starts picking. It's getting to be the point now when you watch some of these videos of people, they're not even speaking coherently. Right? When you talk about God giving people over to their own foolishness, you, you watch these videos. And it's not just, I mean, the president who is obviously senile and, and babbles, I think, in one sense, because he's senile. But even he's, some of the other. Because, what? Even intelligent people can do that. Then you, to make matters worse, you see these people, uh, these uh, people who are pro-choice, uh, Talk about how they would should take fetuses and just use them as fire kindlings until they heat them home. It, you know, accepted the, the the truth and got them over to their own. I mean, illustrating. So when it happens, church, it's even worse because now you're destroying the work of God. And so the situation in Corinth is neither new or novel. Well, and have found their identity or significance in groups, and this is getting back to the, the real property of the court. They identify a man, even a good man, and then, but for doing that, if there was elevating the pride, they say, you're not in the right group. You haven't seen what I see. You know, you, have, you haven't seen the way this man says things, or whatever. They take pride in belonging to a leader, if you see it, I mean, this is this is something. There's something in humanity that that does this. You see it with gangs, where they roam the street. They uh, they 
themselves with a certain gang, and, and people to be initiated to a gang, in some cases they're told to go out and just kill anybody, just to prove that you belong in our gang, to kill an innocent person, just to be accepted by a group. And that's an extreme form, but it's the same principle. Culture, another example of this, you have a certain charismatic leader, and by charismatic I don't mean Pentecostal type, someone who's just great speaker, personality, well, you know, there's a, we all understand that there's some people that do because of their car or their, the way they can speak, and so just are attracted to that, and that's their identity, and their sense of belonging. Some of these followers will believe anything they're taught, will do anything they're told by their leader. And you say, well, they're not being proud, this is somebody else. No, but it becomes, it becomes a source of pride. Is I'm in the right group, following the right person. And they become proud and arrogant of their leader. That's what's going on here in Corinth. And so in verse 21, we see the flip side of this. So let no one boast in this, for all things are yours. And this, this last, these last, uh, three verses are extremely important. They, they should, how about life verses? These should be some life verses right here because they're, they're, they're so foundational to everything that we are. The flip side of trying to pursue this world as if nothing else matters is that it's all Is that not what it says in verse 21? All things are yours. And then he goes on to cover everything that you possibly could want. Indeed, verse 22. And then it says, now, remember, everything's yours, but it's Christ. Christ is God. So it's not you to be, not yours to be consumed upon yourself. It's yours, though, for your good as you serve and honor the Lord, whose servants we are. Not only does the world not have it themselves, but they don't have a right view of everything else. When we Christians do this, it is because we have forgotten all that we have in Christ. In other words, the world thinks I must have things. It doesn't have to be always material things. Sometimes the world just wants, wants fame, wants acceptance, wants respect, things, power, whatever. Uh, and they don't think they can be happy without it. And Paul says, no, wait just a minute, everything's already yours in Christ. But, obviously it doesn't mean everything. Because I don't have anything in the world, right? So what does it mean here? Well, Romans 8, 28, 32. But we know that for those who love God, all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So, Every circumstance of life, everything that happens to you, every scenario is yours in a good sense. It's working out for your good. So that alone is, is, is we quote that verse all the time because it couldn't be more fundamental to who we are, right? But notice verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so he kind of expands it. Not just all circumstances, but everything. Every material thing is yours. And that's interesting verses, I think. 
Does it literally mean every last thing? Well, we all know that's not the case. Now, there's a sense in which we can almost say that, but God never intended for man to have uh, everything. You know, you know. Obviously, your new car is not what God. That's the neighbor, and you'd, be, you'd have it. If, if it's not a ill, if it's thing. Anyway, but God never intended for us to or to be able to eat everything that there is. God didn't save us. Uh, but consider how this does work itself out. The lost are never content and always want more and cannot be content if they don't get it. In living, if a Christian lives by worldly wisdom, then they don't think that they can be happy without certain things, whether it be material or otherwise. We know that everything, and this is what I said, I think get that, everything needs to be happy, everything that we need to serve the Lord well, everything that we need to gain great reward in heaven is yours. I don't need my neighbor's car, or I'd have my neighbor's car, or a car. I need whatever I need to function, God created, and yours. We know that everything we need to be happy is ours when we need it. And so, while we struggle with contentment, because it's one thing to say these things, and know these things, we know it's another thing to be content. Things we don't have. We might think we do. So I need, I, I'm sick and I need to be cured. Well, maybe you need to be cured if God wants you to continue to live or to continue to be healthy. But if God plans on making you home, you don't need to be It's all, it goes right back to what I've always said about you have to understand what a blessing is, what a good thing is. When we promote ourselves, we're saying we are unsure of Christ and his wisdom. We need to quit deceiving ourselves. We are, what we, we are needy, no doubt about it. But we have to understand what a need is. We are foolish born to this world. We are just one breath away from any number of disasters. What we need is pride. Not any of us. We don't need any of us going around pushing ourselves upon uh, others, acting like we are more important than somebody else, uh, living by our own agenda. What we need is pride. And when I have pride, I have everything else. And that, I mean, like I say, these are foundational verses that cannot be overstated, overemphasized. It's our simpleness that has made us needy, trying to act like we have all the answers. It's just a sign of our pride. So becoming a fool, like Paul says in verse 18, is acknowledging that I need Christ more than anything, and that without him, I don't need that. And as I said, it's being... Every day we see examples that people who have rejected Christ and each straight. So not all people are like that, but we're seeing what happens when God gives a people over to that kind of judgment. They they lose the common sense of So the lost person don't think they need Christ at all. See Christians come to think that we don't 
need Christ to take care of us, to God. And both of those things dishonor him when we when we think that, that we're okay. And so grace always tells us two things. We need help, and there is help available. So it humbles and encourages us to point out our need, but also our strength in Christ. If the grace of God is working in you, you are not an arrogant, selfish, hard-to-get-along-with person. It doesn't mean that you can't struggle. But if, if, if you really understand grace, it's going to go a long way. So all things are yours. To stop something is taken away from you, from your life, that, that, that somehow my life has come to an end, life's not worth living, living anymore, I have an excuse to be bitter, whatever. Because verse 21 says you have everything you need. All you ever had was Christ to be. So that in chapter 4, do you have anything that wasn't given to you to start with? You're going to inherit it all, a new heaven and a new earth. Why on earth do you feel like you can't be happy without some trinket? And this is what allowed someone, a, a, a preacher like uh, Charles Simon, who lived, I think, in the 18, 1700s or 1800s. He was a pastor in England, and of course, you know, the, the Church of England, and, and you got uh, parishes. Uh, work, things work a little bit different than what we're used to, but in that particular case, families owned pews. You literally would own your own pew, and you would lock that in there is yours. Now, you know, it is what it was. So, Simon, uh, Charles Simon preached the gospel, and uh, many in the church hated what he was preaching, and so what they did was they just locked their pews and quit coming to church. And so literally there was no place to sit, and for years people would have to stand around the perimeter to hear him preach until the Lord finally sent revival. They started blessing him in a better way. What would allow him to do that? Because it would be difficult for any preacher to, first of all, wonder if you know, maybe it's time to leave, but what would allow you to be to suffer scorn for so many years? Look at Christ. And he had everything that was available to him in Christ. So it goes on in verse 22 to assume that you have to have this leader that you're that you're uh, tying an identity in, Paul, Apollos, John Piper, John MacArthur, you know, the thing that uh, if I can't hear preaching right there, that you have to have something. He, he talks about kind of the initial problem that they're having right there, that the pastor or teacher is not handling it very well. It just undermines God's power. That Feel like, well, if I can't hear him preach, I, I just don't want to hear him. And, you know, it's easy to get to mindset like that. If they're doing the Lord's work, he can use them. And you thrive underneath, under them, even under my ministry, you can thrive. Because we're doing the Lord. He's the one who gives the increase, right? I ended up calling water, but I'm the one. And so you can be content, even in this church you have everything. You know, and, and, and there are people who 
don't come here because, well, we don't have the music. We don't have the, the glitz. We, we just, you know, we don't, we're, we're not slick. You know, we, and we can't do some of the things that maybe we like to do. And, well, then I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, and, you know, it's their business. But I, I feel like anybody like that, look, okay, I, don't worry, Jim. I don't. You can be blessed here, even in this little world, because it's the Have um, it, we we have it all as well here as anywhere else, but it's because we have Christ. And if this isn't true, then the opposite is also true. You could be you could prosper no matter where you went. It was there better as well. So a lot of people need to quit looking to prosper. Uh, uh, you know, no for something new. Uh, to quit looking to pursue uh, deeper doctrines and just become proficient in what they do know and what they do have. Now, on the flip side, some people need to quit wanting to be spoon-fed all the time. Quit seeking the baby formula and ask the Lord to help you digest a deeper, meatier, mature thing. And I've known some people who they, well, you know, it's just, it's good to be deep. Well, what they're saying is, I don't like to think that. And I want to be challenged. And, yeah, I understand there are other preachers who, when they preach, they, you know, they, they do it in such an engaging, interesting way that you can enjoy it. But at the end of the day, are you seeking to be fed by the Lord or not? Only those who walk in the light know how to use all things. These things pretty much cover everything here verse 22. All the things that you need that God has given you, everything that he means for you to have is yours in Christ. The law certainly doesn't have that. So when we can't be united, we're misusing the gift of God that he's given us. So verse 23, as I said, should be one of our life verses. At the same time, it tells us that nothing can harm us, nothing can so nothing can be has to be held too tightly because it's all going to work out in the end. You're Christ and Christ is God. So what else do you want? It's all gained in having Christ. All of us are tied together in the eternal oneness with God, the Father, Jesus Christ, and thus to each other. And so as we get ready to celebrate communion, we're reminded that, that this, this is a it's a communion of the saints. We are one in Jesus Christ. We're acting out these very things. How can we be divided? Let's not get ourselves to, that obeying Christ and walking. We can be divided. But no, it doesn't work that way. So the light of the Bible explains all this to us. So the question I think Paul is asking is, do you believe uh, these things? Do you live by them? Do you talk like and if not, everything you do and live for is falling. It's a dead-end street that's going to disappear at the judgment. We saw last week. So I think in some ways he sums up the letter so far. They are building a church with wood, hay, and straw, and things are going to come to an end. Things aren't going to work out well. And of course, you can see that many did not take his advice and 
there was a real problem. So before we walk outside of this building, before we get to the morning and interact with our family, we had better remember that this is all the Lord's work. This is His farm. It's His building. He's the one who dwells in us. It's His temple. This is what gives us meaning. And if you don't, if you don't, that's not what drives you. Then, well, first of all, I would say you're not Christian, or you're 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 all messed up. You're thinking, and that that should be very troublesome to you. If this, if these things I've been talking about, isn't something that you keep before you all the time, why do we do what we do? Because why we do what we do determines whether it's worthy or not. So, what's more important? The old song says, "I want to be in that number." Well, you know, I don't want to just be in heaven someday. I want to be useful in the kingdom now. That's why I said last week, I don't believe that that passage is saying that there are some people who are just saved any good, but they make it into heaven somehow. I don't think that's what it's saying at all for that very reason. Uh, God didn't save someone for that. He saves us to be changed, to do something. I want to, to not just be in the number, I want to be an effective witness for Christ in some way. So verses 21 through 23 is a good theology. If we're united to Christ, that there is nothing more that we can ask for, hope for, or need. Notice everything that he says, all policies or the world or life, that pretty much covers everything in this life, or death, present, or the future. Everything we'll need is going to be given to when you know Piper, John Piper, you know, written book on future grace. That's what he's talking about. Grace of God extends to everything that I will possibly need. Well, we're all children of the king. And no good thing will ever be withheld from us. And so there's never a reason to be discontent, to be envious, to steal. We're just like Adam and Eve living in paradise. Now, obviously, it's a fallen paradise. But we're, we live in a place where everything that we need is provided for us. And that's what Adam and Eve in paradise and Eden, that's what it was, right? Every, all their needs were met. They didn't take advantage of that, but in in Christ, we've been brought back to that. Not not in the, in the complete sense, but that promise is that that I need is mine. What a, what a promise that is! If anyone comes along and tells you that you need anything else, they're doing Satan's work. I need anything else at this moment, this verse is telling me that I would have it. That's something to praise the Lord about. Notice the future, as I said there in verse 22. Anything I ever will need in the future has already been secured for me in Jesus Christ. How can I not love 